Welcome to the Dr. Budgill Podcast. I couldn't be more excited to have Dr. Gary Linkov here, who's a, well, he does a lot of things. He's a facial plastic surgeon, uh, I would say a hair transplant expert, and um, we'll get into all of that stuff. Um, you slept out here from New York City to join us this morning, so I couldn't be more excited, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dr. Mudgill. Thanks so much for having me. So excited to be here with you today. Hey, man. So as you know, I don't know if you listen to the podcast, I'm sure you probably heard a couple of the episodes. One of the mm-hmm. underlying themes is basically what success means to an individual. And as I always say in all the podcasts, there's the definition is always a little bit different, but ultimately it all boils down to the same thing. But it's always great to hear someone's own unique perspective on what success is. And I'll kind of drop this on you when you when you showed up this morning. I usually give yeah. my guests a day or two to think about it. But you're a smart guy, and I'm sure you've kind of thought about this. So just please fill us in on that, and then we'll take it from there, man. Yeah, I mean, to me, success is just getting to do what you really love, you know, every day. And so that's, that's really what it boils down to for me. And um, also, I mean, I think it's easier to do that if you're working for yourself. So that definitely factored into my decision to start a practice pretty early after my you know training was over. Um, but, but that's really what, what it is. I mean, I, you know, I don't think that it, you can put a, a dollar amount on success. I think it's just, you know, being able to go to work and, and really love what you're doing and, and be somewhat in control of, um, of how, you know, you, you plan out your future. So that, that to me is, is success. I think I think that sums it up really well, man. And and you're someone just reading through your bio on your website. You're someone who's achieved a great de- degree of success. I think at every level. You know, you must have excelled in high school because you went to an Ivy League college. You excelled in college because you went to an Ivy League medical school. Um, you know, I we both kind of shared the background as our parents were immigrants, and we were you know we were well. You were actually born in the Ukraine. Right. I was born here, but your formative years were basically here. You came when you were two or three years old. Yeah. How do you think that sort of factors in? It's like, you know, like for me personally, the hustle of my mother really put a fire under my ass and, you know, wanted to make me do my best, you know, really inspired me to hustle. Um, I imagine there's some element of that in your upbringing, but maybe you could just uh, drop a few minutes on that. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I think the drive to work hard comes from, you know, different um kind of aspects in different kind of corners. So definitely I have constantly my parents' voices in my my ear saying like, you know, you have to achieve, you have to work hard. Um, also, they've never really been able to uh, achieve like independence and always kind of worked for large organizations. So they've told me like, you know, try to work for yourself. So of course, you know, have, growing up you know, with, with that in mind influenced what I do today. Uh, but also, you know, I think it's it's the love for, for what I do, like, you know, medicine and, and and healthcare, um, trying to improve people's lives, it definitely um, inspires me to constantly read and, and do more and, and try to improve my skills. Because uh, at the end of the day, it, it's you know you have uh, another human being in front of you who's you know coming to you for advice, and you know I just feel like I need to do everything possible to um, come fully equipped with the latest information, and uh, you know try to do my best for them every time. So so definitely that also like inspires me to work really hard and, and continue to. Uh, you know, kind of achieve on a high level because, you know, I think you, you can't half-fast it when you're, you're taking care of other people. So, so th- those are some of the main drivers and, um, but, but for sure, like, you know, being an immigrant myself, first generation, uh, you know, definitely seeing how hard my parents worked to even get here and, and the drive to even say like, Hey, we're going to drop everything that we have and start a new, uh, we actually were refugees when we left Ukraine because, you know, they're not going to, they didn't let us keep our passports there. So you, you're kind of leaving without, um, 
you know, the, the, the knowledge that you're going to have uh, success in, in the new place. So, you know, I, I think that factored in also to uh, my decision to kind of, you know, start the practice early because I figured, you know, like, let me just take the chance, you know, but I, I had that um, courage, I think, because of what my parents did to, to get us here. You know, it's interesting. My, my mom was like the exact opposite. So she was a VA physician, you know, mm -hmm. Very, you know, I mean, she was she was a physician, but it's not like you know the big baller physicians that that were like really had successful practices in the eighties and nineties, like mm -hmm. when medicine was having a sort of its golden era. Mm -hmm. She was a government doctor, and for her, she actually kind of discouraged my brother and I from starting our own practices because mm -hmm. she thought it was too risky. You know, she's right. the comfort of working for a larger organization for her was like, okay, you know what, it's safe. Mm -hmm. You know, you know what you're going to make, you can plan accordingly. It's interesting that your parents had the exact opposite take. You know, yeah. they were working for large organizations, and they basically said, "Listen, you got to work for yourself," because mm -hmm. there's so much risk associated with that. I know when I started my own practice, it was you know I was shitting in my pants. You know, I, yeah. I was like over a million dollars in debt, and I don't come from uh, you know I come from very humble upbringings. I didn't have anyone bankrolling this for me, um, so you know I I got what my mom was saying when I was living through it. But I'm glad that I did it. You know, my yeah. wife really encouraged me and kind of pushed me to do it. Um, but it's amazing that your parents, you know, had this entrepreneurial mindset, you know? Yeah, I mean, that that is really interesting. You can face the same, uh, you know, experiences and challenges, but then, you know, have a different interpretation on it. So I think this kind of brings up another, like, great point where I think we were told many times, especially for entrepreneurs, that you have to go all in. You know, you watch Shark Tank, and that's what mm -hmm. they frequently say. But when you read um, certain books and you actually hear about people's, like, real stories, it's rare that people truly go all in. Um, there's always, I think, some hedging, you know. So, so it's, you also brought up the VA. So I'm at the Brooklyn VA two days a week because as I start my own practice, it takes time to build. And um, so, which my is where form, she worked, by the way. Yeah, at the oh, that's really cool. So my form of hedging is to say, well, I'm going to go to the VA. I'm going to get a steady salary there, um, but also continue to to build my my practice or to follow my passion, and. And that's, you know, I think probably one of the better ways to do it because if you drop everything and, and yes, it's very time consuming and all of that, but I'd rather, you know, work, you know, the Sunday and, and part of my Saturday and continuing to kind of build while I also have some safety net there. So uh, that's, you know, probably an important point to bring up for any kind of entrepreneurial um, endeavor that it's, I think it's actually rare. Uh, there was a a book I read, I'm trying to remember the name, it was Adam, Adam Grant, is a UPenn author, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, of the actual book, I'm blanking right now, but, but yeah, oh, Originals, Originals is the name of the book, it was a very good read, and he brings up examples of how people really didn't always quit their day job, and, and often, you know, like Bill Gates, you know, was working for um, a company when, when he came up with the software, uh, and was already starting to kind of hustle on the side while he continued to have his day job. And, and that's a pretty common story. So, yeah, yeah so I mean, I, I think sometimes it seems from, from afar or in hindsight that, oh my gosh, this person is such a big risk taker, but and, and there's always like some hedging going on. Yeah, you know, that's a very good point because I had a big hedge going too. I was actually, I'm, I'm a dermatologist and a dermatopathologist. Mm -hmm. I was actually reading slides for a group, mm -hmm. um, and which was, I basically assumed someone's full-time job to do that. It was a huge volume practice mm -hmm. but that's what you're saying it's like i was working seven days a week because i was building my practice reading the slides on the side but that's kind of like you know there's all you're right there's always a hedge but 
there's always a hustle too because right. everyone's not going to work seven days a week. Exactly. Like you are right now. Yeah. You know, so something to be said for that. You know, obviously you have to make an income. You have a family. Um, you don't have kids yet, right? No, we have one on the way. Oh, uh, early August. Nice, uh, that's did. awesome. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah. you know, it's real. Like, you know, you have to make money because you're living in New York City and, you know, you have family yeah, that, you know, absolutely. you have to contribute towards. Absolutely. Um, and I felt that same pressure, which is why I was working two. I mean, sometimes I was working three jobs at the same time. Yeah. Because, you know, you got to get paid to live in New York City. Yeah, I mean, this... I, I think to start a business of any kind, you have to really enjoy it and, and be okay with, I mean, there's there's no such thing as like overtime. It's like it's just constant work, you know, especially in this era with, you know, social media and, and everything being online. Um, you just you never know when you're going to get that next message, you know, or that little uh, red icon will pop up on your Instagram. And, and it could be nothing and it could be something really interesting that kind of continues to propel you forward. So I think it's... Um, yeah, it, it just have to be okay with with that sort of all um, in, enveloping uh, process, and and some people aren't. They they want that uh, those steady hours, and then to just my wife is like that. I mean, she's a physician, um, very smart, very good at what she does, but she wants things to just end at a certain time and not be bothered. So she worked for the Manhattan VA actually mm-hmm. full time, and when she's done with the day, I mean, there there are no phone calls. There's no one, you know, coming to her with questions uh, work-related, and that's what she likes. When she's at work, she's super focused, takes great care of the veterans, but when she's done, she's done. Um, for me, I, you know, I always feel like there's something missing almost. If Like, like why should I be done if I'm doing mm-hmm. what I enjoy? Uh, so sometimes, for sure, things can, you know, go to the other extreme where it gets a little overwhelming and, you know, you're staying up late thinking about your next step or something that happened where, you know, you, you have to... The full burden is on you. So if something good happens, great. You're like, I did this. I'm awesome. Something bad happens. You know, you're, it, it's kind of your, your butt on the line. And, um, yeah, so, so I think it's, you have to be okay with that sort of nonstop, uh, work environment. Yeah, yeah that's very well said. Um, I do think I, my wife is a dentist and, you know, she, she has her own practice here, mm-hmm. but she works for other offices as well. But I, I do think for a relationship, especially when you have a family, like what you're about to find out, um, it, it kind of is important for to have some balance within the relationship. So, you know, right. it's hard if everyone, both parties are balls to the wall and, you know, hustling nonstop because I think the family could potentially suffer, in, you know, yeah. under those circumstances. Um, so for, for myself, I have three kids mm-hmm. and, you know, the balance between me, like, always on the hustle mm-hmm. and you know my wife also hustling hard but having the sort of dedicated time where she can focus on whatever what the family needs right. has been so invaluable yeah. you know i mean not, and I'm, that's not to say that i feel like her hustle is greater than my hustle because there's so many moving parts with the kids and work and you know it's i don't know how she does it all yeah but women are also i think more sophisticated than guys when it comes to sort right. of multitasking <laughs> and managing all those For sorts sure. of things you know yeah yeah and i mean i think having someone at home who really supports the efforts, you know, of that maybe one individual who's trying to really drive things forward. I, you know, I think is, is, you know, can't be understated. I mean, it's, it's so important. I mean, I kind of feed off of a lot of her support and energy towards just, you know, encouraging me to, to continue going. Uh, and also whenever I have like a real question or issue, you know, she's the first one I ask for, for advice from. So she doesn't officially like work with me, but I mean, essentially she gives me more advice than anyone else. Uh, but also, 
you know, I think another way to, to look at it, like, for example, I also consider taking out a bigger loan to, to, to do more at the start of my practice. And she basically said, you're not doing that. And, you know, it's kind of hard to overrule her, you know, because you have to kind of compromise and make things work in the relationship. And she just felt that, you know, with my student loans and other things that were happening with you know, the baby coming, that this just wouldn't be smart and that I could still do it without taking out that more major loan. So, you know, I said, okay, well, let me try it. So I think, um, you know, just an, an extra challenge, uh, if you will. But, but in a way, you know, I think you have to, again, if you're going to go to the person, respect them for certain types of advice, you have to be open to maybe doing it in, in a slightly different variety than how you initially um, envisioned. So, so, yeah, I think having someone at home who you truly trust and, and who can help, help you in all the different aspects of, of uh, a business, I think, is invaluable. Yeah, man. I, yeah, I same here, man. I bounce everything off my wife, and she's given me tons of great advice. And you know, yeah. I think set appropriate limits as well. <laughs> Just like your wife's, like, hey, it's probably not a great idea. Yeah, I would say my, my wife is definitely more fiscally conservative with stuff, and yeah. um, it's you kind of need you kind of need that in your ear a little bit too, you know, right. because you can know there's always the next laser you could get or the next yeah. device that you can get. And, you know, these are like hundreds of thousands of dollars, like each one of these devices, yeah. Yeah. and everyone else seems to be getting one. You're like, oh shit, I need one for my office too. Yeah. But there's the reality of running a business as well, right? right. So yeah, it's, it's, that's uh, you know, I yeah. have a boss. And too. the marketing expenses have, I mean, it just it amazes me how much some people pay. Like I, you know, I'm starting to finally figure out what some of the competitors are paying for for marketing, and it's just astounding, you know. And I just think like, you know, of course they're getting more leads because they're right. paying for them. And and sure, it helps to have been in in practice for many more years, but. Still, there's also, you know, something to be said for just a, a budget that's set aside for especially like online, you know, targeting of, of patients. And, and that's that can be very tough to compete against. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I never like early on, I never really did anything. I was on ZocDoc. That was like the one mm -hmm. thing that helped me really grow my practice in the city. Um, but until I started like really talking to other doctors and yeah. like learning like, wow, there is there are a significant portion of the revenue that the practice is generating is allocated towards digital marketing or, you know, like optimize, you know, search engine optimization, whatever it is. Right. I was, I was, I was like, wow, I was like, I probably do need to maybe do some more of that, you know? So yeah. in the last couple of years or maybe the last year, I should say, I have been allocating more resources towards that. It's hard to know what the benefit is. Cause I feel like everything takes like, it's like a year cycle right. basically. So mm -hmm. you basically make this huge investment and you know, it's, it's a gamble, right? Yeah. But you know, exactly. if it works, then you, you allocate more resources to that. But if it doesn't, then, you know, you, you allocate those resources to something else, but that's, yeah. that's business, man. Right. And you know, when right. you're a doctor, mm -hmm. you, I mean, no one really learns about business unless you actually go to business school and, you know, and that's a different yeah. type of business, I think as well. Mm -hmm. um, but when you have a small business and you're running a small business, your, your biggest resource, mm -hmm are other people who are running a small business like yours, you know? So yeah. for me, I found talking to other doctors who are in private practice, which are few, and there's not a lot of doctors in private practice anymore because of mm -hmm. all the consolidation and stuff that's Absolutely. happening in medicine. Yeah. And there's even fewer solo practitioners, you know? I yes. mean, I, I can name on one hand, like the solo practitioners that I know that are in solo private practice. Right. And they're an incredible resource for me because, you know, we bounce ideas off each other. Mm -hmm. Hey, did this work for you? And it's, it's also important to there's not a lot of competition there's 
there's not a lot of competitive energy when it comes to like, you know, I'm talking to my other friends who are dermatologists in solar practice. Yeah. It is a very collegial in, environment because I know these folks for years that we're friends. Yeah. But it's it's cool to me how open we all are with each other mm-hmm. because you know I mean first of all we're in New York City there's a gajillion people that live there yeah, right. but you know we truly want to see each other succeed which is which is really that's great. It's, it's a beautiful thing yeah yeah it's pretty cool I found a small group like that fairly recently there's like the facial plastic surgery society in New York and recently I just met like three other fairly young you know plastic surgeons specific specifically for the face and we went out to dinner and realized that we each have like some subspecialty within the field that we would like to promote in our practices and it was pretty amazing because it's not like we plan to have something different you know each person but everyone really had like their own little niche so it's amazing you, you think like we're already so subspecialized and yet there's still something that someone likes to do more of or has more experience with so you try to support each other that way. And one of the people actually, I pulled him into the space where I'm currently practicing. And so he's like a revision rhinoplasty uh, subspecialist. And so in a way, maybe it kind of creates a little competition for me, but he also just based on his training has a ton of experience in just that. So when I had a recent case of kind of a more challenging nose, I went to him to just kind of confirm like, is this what you would do? So it's also becomes another great resource. It depends kind of how you look at it. I think some people get, I don't know, uh, nervous about talking to their colleagues, but I think I see it as like a huge plus as well. And it's really important to foster those relationships going forward. I think there are very few people who do good work, like truly good work, who care about what they do, who aren't just in it for the money. And when I hear, even if I don't know the person, but I just hear that, oh, this person's really good. Um, and I see their results and like, I get excited almost, you know, that there's someone out there, you know, who, who cares and, and is doing great work. Right. And, uh, so I, I don't think there's ever like, you know, people told me like, why are you going into Manhattan? It's such a saturated market. I didn't really ever see it that way. Cause I always felt that there was room for someone who would do good work, you know? And I think that's the case really anywhere you go, maybe someplace that's more isolated where you're the only doc you know or in your specialty for you know hundreds of miles um sure even if you're not that good you can still prosper and and there are plenty of people in manhattan who you know really kind of have subpar results or um, just are maybe in it for the wrong reasons and they still some of them have like flourishing practices Uh, so so yeah i think there's room for for good people and i think that those same people should really kind of link up and you know, create a, a great environment for everyone. I mean, if, if, whether in New York or anywhere else in New York is, yeah. it, there are a lot of plastic surgeons and dermatologists in New York, Yeah, but the cream always rises to the top, man. You know I mean? It's just the way it works. Like, you know, your work will speak for itself. The way you treat your patients speaks for itself. And word of mouth is the single biggest factor for me yeah. that I found in the growth of my practice. You know, it's the golden rule. You yeah. know, just treat people with respect, the way you treat your family, a loved one, deliver the kind of care that you would expect a family or a loved one to receive. Right. And it's a self-perpetuating thing, man. You know, yeah. I want to go back to two, well, two things I want to ask you. One is, are you an artist also? Because I, I saw in your profile that you went to the Medici Institute, you know, which is, or I forget the exact name of it, but something yeah. Medici, um, <laughs> right. which are obviously like a huge art family historically. Right. Yes. Um, so what was that all about? I know that was between college and med school, right? Or yeah, yeah. You know, I, I dabbled in, in art since I was a little kid. My dad's a classical guitarist. Now he does a lot of computer work, but his formal training is in classical guitar, and he taught at a conservatory in Ukraine, in Kiev. 
And so he, you know, he's just a really good artist in many ways. You know, he's a creative guy, um, not just a good musician, but he's also a good, like, fine arts kind of person. And so I get a lot of, like, my creativity, if you will, from him. So I, I tried several instruments. It wasn't my thing. You know, clarinet, guitar, you know, he tried to teach me just you know, it just didn't come naturally and I just didn't have that drive to keep going with that. But but art and, and drawing and, and painting, I really enjoyed from a young age. So my parents uh, set me up even for like, it was really nerdy, but even just some art camps. There was one, uh, Usedan, which I don't know if it even exists out in like Suffolk, uh, Long Island, but it was called Usedan. It was like kind of an artsy sort of summer camp. So I'd go to that. I'd go to Hofstra for just some art classes for young people. So this is for like drawing? Yeah, painting. drawing, painting, some sculpture, but but mostly a lot of um, acrylic uh, uh, painting. And th- so I just kind of did that when I was a kid, you know, little art shows and stuff. Nothing really professional, but I enjoyed it. My parents supported that. And so like, that kept going. And then in college, I took some more formal classes. Again, it was not my major, but it was just something to do elective that I really liked. Um, so then between uh, undergrad and med school, I had a chance to go for six weeks to Florence, lived in Florence, Italy, and took this, um, it was actually a sketching class. So every day I went to a different museum. There's so many museums there and even to like neighboring towns and just uh, just sketched whatever you know i saw and, and we had instruction and all that and um so would you sketch you come back to like a clinic type setting and they'd go over like exactly the they had set. like a studio and then that we would just go like on site do the sketching for you know there were different themes for like each week um and then we'd come back to the studio get our instruction and then kind of go back out into wow. the field is it in italian it was uh, no, no. It was they, they, this um, school, this program there has many different classes. So I was living uh, in this like four bedroom apartment with guys who were doing all types of other different different classes. So one guy was taking like a mafia class, like another one was like into photography. So mm-hmm. everyone had like their own thing, and you know we still went out and had a good time in Italy. But uh, it was it was great to improve my you know, kind of art skills. And, uh, you know, just kind of enjoy the, the culture there. Is that something so, you're still involved in? Or do you still like sketch? And I don't have, I mean, I don't have that much time anymore. In med school, I did some of that. Just kind of hanging out in my dorm room, I, I would do some. But honestly, like once residency started and, and now I just, I don't, I don't have the space for it. But also just like the, the time to sit yeah. down. But I definitely feel like it helps. You know, anytime you have to design an incision on the face, like, there's a lot of that kind of artistic stuff that factors in. So I think every plastic surgeon I know is an artist, you know, I mean, there's or a lot of them are actually. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely helps. I, I think it, part of it um, is kind of inspiring my interest in, in the field, like, but also it, it it's helpful for, you know, for the actual procedures. Cause if you, if you don't have that kind of artistic eye, it, it's very hard to decide like how are you going to close a wound on the face, right. you know, or how can you optimize um, some surgical procedure that you read about or saw someone else do. And those constant like iterations are helpful to, you know, come, come at it with like an artistic background. Uh, so for sure. So, I, you know, one day it'd be nice to build out some kind of a studio where I can, you know, do some clay molding and all this kind of stuff. But for now, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I go to the museums, you know, yeah. and, and enjoy, so enjoy looking it. at it. Yeah. yeah. The, the other thing which I think is unique with your practice is a lot of plastic surgeons, like the, a focus for them isn't hair transplants. You know, that's, it's either like a total unique subspecialty that all people do. 
or a lot of dermatologists do hair transplantation or, or, or general surgeons. It's like folks just get into that, but that's the sole focus of their practice. You're a hair transplant expert. You did a lot of training in hair transplants, but not just hair transplants. You do like a lot of wild stuff, like, you know, like your eyebrow transplants and even wilder stuff than that. One is how do you get interested in that? And, you know, how do you incorporate all that into your practice with all the other surgical procedures that you do? Yeah, it's interesting. It, you know, people ask me, like, why did you or when did you know you wanted to be a doctor? You know, that started when I was like really young, you know, and I never necessarily wanted to to do head and neck uh, surgery and facial plastics. But I knew I wanted to do something in medicine when I was really young. Hair. I got into a little bit serendipitously. I mean, it wasn't really all very thought out and, you know, I'm going to be a hair transplant surgeon. Um, the interest started, I would say, towards the end of residency. Uh, we had these exams, you know, the, the, the in-service tests. So before you take like your board exam every year in residency, you have these practice tests. And I was finding that towards the last few years, there were just a lot of these hair questions on our tests for whatever reason. And I was like getting a lot of them wrong. And I'm like, I'm like, how do they expect us to answer this stuff? Like I've never seen a hair transplant. No one I trained with like does this kind of stuff. So I read a little bit about it and that helped, you know, a bit on the exams. I gave a talk in my um, last year of residency to the residents about like hair transplantation. But again, I'd never seen it. I just like, you know, took a chapter and just made it into a presentation. So then during fellowship, I was at WashU and you know, they didn't really give us much time off. They told me from the beginning, like, you're going to get 10 days, and that includes any conference that you go to and, and any exam that you have to take. And I had to take two sets of boards, and which were like two days each. So I'm like, wow, like, I don't have that much time. But they told me like, oh, there are a couple of conferences and one of them uh, and, and, and courses that you can take. And one of them is this hair transplant course in Miami. So I'm like, look, this is just like a great way to kind of get out of town, go maybe learn a little bit more about hair because it was going to be on my like final board exams and uh, just kind of see what it's all about. And it was with this uh, person, um, this hair transplant surgeon who's very popular by the name of Jeffrey Epstein. His practice is in Coral Gables. And so I'm like, okay, let me go check it out. So I went there for three days. Normally he charges a lot of money for uh, a course like this. And he has a lot of doctors who are looking to get into it. But for fellows, since he came through that same pathway, it's free. So if you're a fellow in facial plastics, he just comps you and you just go and hang out. So I did that for three days. And that's really when I started to like truly learn about like the art of it and, and the the nuances that, that it takes. Because you read these books and chapters and there's no way you can just start doing hair on a high level. I mean, yeah, you can buy a machine, you can hire technicians and, you know, just kind of put it together. But you'll never truly understand like the, the underpinnings of it. And, uh, and I don't think you ever really get like great results and do things that aren't sort of your traditional just scalp um, replacement. So being at the course, um, sort of bonding with the staff that was there, um, getting to know Dr. Epstein, talking to him about sort of what my plans were after training, uh, it, it actually was him who came to me and said, hey, you know, we should keep in touch. And this was towards the beginning of my fellowship. Let's be in touch and we'll see where things go. But he tells me that he's in New York fairly often once every you know month or every few months just to hang out or work no to work yeah Yeah. like he was renting space from someone and and just uh, you know doing transplants there because he 
kind of draws from all over the world and a lot of people just want to have it done in New York. So his prices were a little bit higher, but he was bringing his entire team, like mm-hmm. 12, 14 people were flying up to New York every once in a while to, to do these cases. Uh, and he's originally from Long Island. So we just kind of had these things in common. So I kept in touch for a while. I wasn't really hearing anything back and I was you know, making my plans for, for my return to New York City. And I didn't know if it would really actually work out. Uh, but then towards the end of a fellowship, he finally started to reply and said, like, yeah, you know what? Um, I think this could work. Why don't you come out and spend time with me? Uh, so I actually lived in his guest house. Cool, <laughs> and uh, after my fellowship, I spent, you know, a couple of weeks there in Miami, went to work with him every day. Um, they What's his day like? So it's uh, it's very busy. I mean, he, he works uh, long days, but now I think actually just in the last maybe year or so, he's uh, now off like one, like basically three days a week he's off. And, and so, you know, he's just cutting back a little bit. Uh, but his days are, you know, start super early, like uh, usually 6.30 is the, the first case. And he's there until about 7, 7.30. Do we take like Starbucks on the way into work? And uh, Yeah, no, we, we, we just, he, he, I think, had the coffee at home. And then we just took, uh, you know, his, his car in. And he his office is maybe just like, five, 10 minutes away from where he lives, which is super convenient. Um, it's just a very kind of close knit staff um, that he has. A lot of them are, are Cuban. And so they just have like this great connection and uh, extremely hard workers and, and really are passionate about hair, which is great. And many of the techs have been with him for like 10, 15 years. And that really, I think is what makes the difference because if you have traveling techs who just come and go, right. you can't assure uh you know, consistency of results. And with hair, it takes a long time for it to grow out, like 10, 12 months. So you don't want to have a series of cases that you do. And then you find out in a year that like, hey, it just didn't look too good. So I think having the, that those texts that are super good and consistent is very important. So yeah, so he's like, he has many cases running at one time. There's a big space there. So he'll have like four or five hair transplants at once. Uh, at the same time, he has, you know, consultations that he's seeing in post-op. So he kind of bounces back and forth. He's got like his surgical area and then kind of just the regular exam room mm-hmm. side. Um, lots of staff. And uh, he has one full-time partner in in, um, in his office there too. Is he, a, is he a surgeon? He's a surgeon, yeah. Facial okay. plastics. And then yeah. he was very comfortable with hair right after um, his fellowship. And, and is his partner a surgeon as well? Yes. Who does... ENT m- also? ENT, yeah, facial plastics, but does a ton of rhinoplasty. Okay. Um, doesn't do as much hair, but uh, also because Dr. Epstein's doing kind of all the hair. Right. Uh, but but just um, so you they know, do a lot of fillers and stuff too. They do like both. Uh, like both his partner does does injectables, but uh, Dr. Epstein really just so he does a lot of hair transplants, and I'll kind of go into the different types that we do. But also he does a lot of hairline uh, lowering surgery. So it's a real okay. surgical procedure. If someone, mainly it's for women with stable hairlines because in guys, you know, that hairline recedes. And if you make a big cut at the hairline and then their hair recedes, they're going to have this like ugly scar. Right. So it's mainly for, for women with stable hairlines who have kind of the, those high foreheads and mm-hmm. they just want to get it smaller. You can do a transplant procedure, but it, you just need so many grafts and usually over two sessions that, you know, like a year apart. And not only does it get more expensive but the results really aren't as impressive as if you like literally in an hour and a half lower their hairline and and secure it in place yes there's a scar but then what we do is we transplant into the scar and we do kind of like a rounding out procedure about four months after the surgery so it's it's just a a great combination for for people looking to kind of of get a short shorter uh, forehead but we do eyebrow transplants 
eyelash transplants for eyelash the right wow. eyelash for the right candidate. I mean, it's not typically done for just building up the um, uh, overall number of lashes if you already have a normal supply, uh, because you know it's a surgery. I mean, there there are. Uh, some you know downsides to doing that uh, also especially because the eyelashes can grow you know in different directions but it's for a lot of like for burn victims cancer patients um, people who've you know maybe have like tr trichotillomania who you know have kind of have gotten that under control um, who are used to kind of plucking those those hairs out eyebrow transplants on the other hand are very commonly done just for patients who are looking to get fuller eyebrows. You know, they maybe have been plucking for, for years. And Where do you harvest those hairs from? From the back of the head. So those are long. Those could grow really they long. They grow, exactly. They grow long. They need to be trimmed, you know, every few days usually. Yeah. So it just depends on the individual. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, there's definitely some care that, that goes into that. But what's nice is that you get that kind of three-dimensional natural look. And with like our techniques, we're able to put many, many graphs into the eyebrow. So the, like I can tell you that our sort of biggest competitor in, in New York City does approximately 100 graphs per eyebrow for like case. We'll do about 350. So, wow. you know, it, it, it's, but again, it, it all comes down to like the techniques to right. putting those, making those recipient sites that <coughs> will take the hairs and then being able to put each hair in because you can get something called popping where you start, you know, overloading one area and then the hairs that you've already placed start like popping out. So you need proper techniques to be able to really right. lay them all so that they line up. So it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a pretty cool thing. And then also we do a lot of body harvesting. So if someone wants more hair on their head, but they kind of ran out. I mean, you can run out of supply if you've had several hair transplant procedures. So we'll take sometimes from the chest, from the back. Oh, really? Yeah. So other other sites, and so it's um, that's pretty cool too. That's <laughs> funny. Um, there's this joke where a lot of guys who don't have hair on their head they have like tons of hair on their bodies, uh -huh. and there's like this law of hair conservation. Like you don't know, have so much hair on your body, so it's either on your head or your hair. Uh, right. It's either on your head or your body. Yeah, I never knew you could actually harvest someone's like back. You could harvest their like back hair and put it on their head. Yeah, you can. I and mean, usually they're a little bit finer. That's Sometimes cool. they're more coarse actually than the hair, the hair on the head. But it just depends on the individual. Usually it's a little finer. We don't like uh, arm and leg hair because it's too fine. I think there's only one person out in California who who does that. And then so to, to create density, you need to harvest like thousands and thousands of grafts, which can get super expensive and, you know, may still not give you the result that, you know, you were kind of hoping for. So we try to avoid arms and legs. We have a few patients who we've actually done transplants into like into their arms and legs because they've had uh, like laser hair removal like for guys, for example, and then they've regretted it for different reasons, but, hmm. but sometimes people want... Uh, so you I, get those hairs from the head and put them in the arm? I, exactly, exactly right, yeah. yeah. Wow. So our, our number one sort of donor site, like where we get the hairs from, is the back of the head. So the second place would be like the sides of the head, and um, third favorite would be the neck, actually, so, you know, mainly for, for guys. So that those are all good places to get um, hairs, and yeah, and it's all can be safely done. But um, again, it, it, it's really important to have technicians who are used to that process because right. it's a big team effort. They're usually at least like three people working on, on one person throughout the day, you know, and, and these procedures take time. Like some people think, oh yeah, well, eyebrow transplant, I'll come in for an hour. Like, no, like it's like a six, seven hour ordeal. Um, it's a very comfortable process. I mean, we'll, we'll usually give uh, like a 
series of medications for for swelling for like you know antibiotic um, we'll give oftentimes like a valium and an ambien so you're really relaxed a little bit sleepy and uh, you know then obviously like numbing shots and people do extremely well uh, it's very well tolerated uh, but it is a long day so your, your protocol for like sort of the conscious sedation is is an ambient with valium yeah ambient valium um, usually will redose the valium in the afternoon but it's helpful to have the ambient early because especially if we're doing the the harvesting from the back of the head people are on their you know stomachs for mm. like hours and so it's just nice they can kind of like doze off and, and rest and then they wake up we're done with the harvesting they can have lunch and then they come back and we start uh, planting making recipient sites and planting do you do all therapy in your office i don't i don't we have this kind of shared wellness space so there is an all therapy machine that belongs to someone else uh, i don't i don't use it i'm just curious because it's a very painful procedure but it has mm-hmm. it's an amazing procedure mm-hmm. So you know we've been trying to figure out the best ways to get our patients okay. through it. So yeah. originally we were using like Percocet and Valium that didn't work very well. Then I just started using Ativan, which worked very well. Um, but the interesting, you know, it might be interesting with the sort yeah, of might, might want to try the the Ambien. I mean, for sure, like they need to kind of you know recover from that. We always have someone take them home or yeah, yeah. exactly because people can get you know really really sleepy. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we've done uh, hairline advancements, and and that's a a very invasive procedure. I mean, literally we'll make that incision at the hairline and then we'll go all the way down to the periosteum, which is that layer right on bone, and then go all the way back to the back of the head and literally take their scalp and like pull it forward. And then we'll have to drill into the skull to put what's called endotines in that act to secure that scalp in its new position. So, I mean, that's that's a lot of work, you know, for, for someone to be kind of awake for and so and that's all they get value really so local i guess and local right yeah lots of local so if they can tolerate that like for sure i think they can do all and lots of other things i mean i'll do facelifts under something similar similar combination um and people do great so i think yeah i mean it's almost like you don't necessarily need deep sedation for a lot of procedures these days Uh, and some people are you know they're they're scared of, of anesthesia for, for good reason. I mean, your chance of getting a blood clot is higher. You know, uh, if they just take these pills, there's very little that can happen to them. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it's a great idea. And maybe it'll work for yeah, you guys, cool. too. Always yeah. learning something. Yeah. <laughs> so, Gary, man, where yeah. can people find you? So just maybe some of your social and uh, just your office information. Yeah, absolutely. So Instagram, it's uh, dr, like Dr. Gary NYC. That's my main Instagram account. And I manage that fully on my own <laughs> i don't let anyone touch I feel that, that one yeah um and on my website is city facial plastics so i decided to name my practice like different from my own name just you know in case it, it were to grow and just kind of to have some, some umbrella organization so it's cityfacialplastics.com and if people have questions they want to email me the best way to do it is through info at cityfp.com um, and then our number is right on the website, so they can just find it there. So it's who, who calls easy. anymore these days? Anyway? Yeah, it's honestly, like most people are like emailing, you know, DMing online, right. uh, finding me through like uh, Real Self. Uh, I don't get a lot of ZocDoc activity because you know, they're looking a lot of times for someone in network, and uh, I don't do a lot of insurance work. Uh, you know, especially a lot of face plastics is just not covered, right. so I don't get a ton of traffic through there. But but Real Self uh, has been really helpful for my practice so far. 
for sure. Man. Well, I know you got to get back to the city to see some patients, man. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming out here, man. Thank this you was so great. much. And it was awesome little, learning about you yeah. and you know the, great. the stuff that you do and. Uh, you got like a lot of sophisticated, cool stuff going on, and you know I'll, I'll certainly be sending you some patients. Thank and you. Hopefully, Thanks. some of the Appreciate other d- derms and plastics who don't do the things that you do, uh, which I don't think there's very many people that do the things that you do. Um, we'll send folks your way too, because you, know, you. you got a really bright future, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks so much for All having right, me. Man. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Doctor Mudgill podcast. The corresponding video can be found on YouTube, IGTV, and Facebook. Let's get it.